Okay, everybody. If everyone can get their seats, we are going to get started this morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. We are going to be in chapter 15, verses 29 to 34 today. We're going to be doing part 4 of this pretty long chapter, chapter 15. And if you guys have been here consistently, which most people in this room are here pretty consistently, um, we're speaking of the importance of the belief in the resurrection. Pretty much, just if there's a chapter that has everything to do with the resurrection that we need to understand that is contained in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And we kicked off part 1 with the first 11 verses, which speaks of the fact of Christ's resurrection. In other words, this was not disputed by any of the believers in the church at Corinth. It was part of the gospel presentation, right? The very presentation that was given to them in which they received and in which they, of which they believed. So we can conclude that Christ's resurrection is in fact essential to the gospel message by the very design of God. That is part of the gospel message, that Christ not only did he live, did he come, did he die, but he also rose from the dead. <clears throat> so Jesus said he would rise, and he in fact did, and he was witnessed by the apostles, right? The apostle Paul, last of all, he says, and more than 500 at once. So there's a reliable source of witnesses that witnessed his resurrection. Then in verses 12 to 19, part 2, Lenny began that chapter. And Paul addresses the problem with some in the church, which was that some rejected the notion that the dead, not Christ, but the dead, the rest of the dead, will not rise one day. And he makes his case for the resurrection of the dead using logical reasoning. Some were teaching that the rest of the dead do not rise. So in other words, they affirmed that Christ did, and they accepted that because he was God, but regular people, they thought, cannot and do not. If anything, they thought the resurrection of the dead would keep them in a forever limited prison of the body. This stemmed from, again, false type of philosophical Gnostic kind of thought that was very prevalent during that day in Greek thought. Again, <clears throat> once one died, the belief was that they were freed from the prison of the body. Also, from the natural perspective, there is a sense in which this is true because dead men or dead anything do not rise in and of themselves. It's just not what happens naturally. So this was very similar reasoning, reasoning, if you think about it, that Nicodemus was using. Remember when Nicodemus was talking to Jesus, he came to him secretly. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? And Nicodemus was trying to understand what Jesus was saying from a natural perspective. And the bottom line is you can't, right? What Jesus was saying was spiritual language and supernatural language, Okay, And the resurrection is also something that is not natural, but supernatural. So if you're trying to understand it naturally, it's impossible. right? It can't be done. Verses 13 and 19, just a quick review here, says, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, 
we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom we did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And in those verses, Pastor Len spoke that Christ, mentioned that Christ is the basis of Paul's argument. For the, resur- uh, the basis of Paul's argument for the resurrection of the dead, in which they affirmed and believed. There was no denying that Christ rose from the dead. Okay? But we have to ask ourselves the question, who is Christ? Christ was, in fact, a real what? Person, right? He was a man. He was a man. So we're left with the logical argument, if you take what they're saying, expressed in the following words. You say dead men don't rise. And Christ was a man, therefore Christ did not rise. That's what would happen if we take their way of thinking. But in fact... Christ was a man, and Christ did die, and he rose from the dead. Therefore, since Christ is a man and rose from the dead, we can say that dead men do, in fact, rise. And then Paul says some head-scratching things that we can't just sweep under the carpet in these verses. If Christ hasn't been raised, he says that our preaching is useless, our faith useless, and we are still in our sins, implying, to my understanding, that if Christ didn't raise, he wasn't who he said he was. You know? And if our belief is in a false Christ, or anyone's belief is in a false Christ, then we are not saved. And all those who died believing in him are still in their sins. Moreover, our hope in a future is really just fantasy because our future rests on the resurrection of the dead of which Christ is the first fruits and the basis of. Then Pastor John mentioned in one of his points on what first fruits, uh, first fruits was and is, if you remember that, it was a physical provision if you go back into the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but now is an eternal provision. And I believe that 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 provision is a kingdom with a new shell, unlike this one, that is incorruptible and in his presence forever, right? So in those verses, verses 20 to 28, um, we read those. And I believe that those verses kind of flesh out the following syllogism, that Christ was and is a man, Christ rose from the dead, therefore dead men do rise. And because of this truth, we can conclude that it is Christ's resurrection that guarantees ours as believers. We are reminded that Christ is the first fruits of those who have, who have died and will rise again to eternal life. And I would say that he is the first fruits by representation, which is that he is the other covenant head of humanity. And there's only two. We have the first one, who is Adam, and the last, and, I, and we need to understand that it's the last. There's no second. Sometimes we say that. That might imply that there's a third. There's just the first, who is Adam, and the last, 
Christ, right? And I personally believe that this is the key to understanding the whole purpose of God and the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 to 26 says, For since by a man came death, that is Adam, right? By a man, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. In other words, dead men can't and won't rise in Adam, but can and will in Christ Jesus. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. after that those who are Christ that is coming, in other words, there's no group here, there's no third group here, just, uh, that's it. It is Christ first, then all believers, past, present, and future, when that day comes, when he comes back, and there's judgment. Verse 24, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And I love this. Death is only part of this fallen age which was sown in corruption. There is no death in God's kingdom which will be recreated and incorruptible in the future. Death is uncharacteristic of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? It's uncharacteristic. There is only life abundantly and perfection in this age to come that we await. That is our future hope. He died and rose, and by consequence, all in Him, the church, true believers, who have died and will rise as well, because He is their covenant head. We have an awesome, wonderful covenant head in Jesus Christ. He forever represents His people. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Mikey, can you read that? Romans chapter 6, Verse 5. For we have in common united with him the of his death. Certainly we have, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Alright, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Certainly, again, our hope is a guarantee. But then we have these next verses. And these next verses can be a little difficult because of the first one, as we'll see. But I do not think it is so difficult if we understand what I believe is what Paul is saying to uh, Paul's reasoning is. But I think afterwards you will see that it's not that difficult if we just take a good look at it. So as we look at this next section, or before we look at this next section, let's bow with me and go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need you, and we want to understand what you are saying to us this morning. We acknowledge again in our own self we don't always get it right. We acknowledge that we can't on our own. So we need you, Lord. We need you to take charge in this room and in our hearts and in our minds, Father. Thank you for making us your, your own special people, people who will live forever and ever and be in your presence in this wonderful kingdom to come. But Lord, as we are here now in this world 
Help us to enjoy every second of the life down here while we await our great future. So help us, Lord, to understand your word this morning. Help us to leave here with better understanding. And I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34. Mr. Wessel, can you read those for us? Sure. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be de deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right, amen. So, up to this point... Paul has defended the resurrection by using several if-then arguments, if you go back before this. He now expresses the meaningless of the practice or pursuit of certain things if, in fact, the dead do not rise. And I have that in, your, in, in the paper. I just wrote this, just, just something for us to, to help us just as we go on further. The dead being raised or resurrection, as we look at those terms in the scriptures... Just understand that what that really means is a future hope. Therefore, no resurrection or the dead not being raised would equal no future hope. Make sense? Right? So number one here, Roman number one, Paul is going to give two examples of the resurrection being endorsed by certain actions. Okay? The first one is their false practice of baptizing for the dead. This was something, this was what makes this, this whole passage a little bit difficult, right? Their false practice of baptizing for the dead. This was something that they practiced in this particular body of Christ. We already know that they did a lot of things that were wrong and screwed up, okay? Which Paul didn't approve of, but he's going to use it to show the absurdity of it if there is no future hope. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are, who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for, for them? And I believe this is talking about a practice again that they were doing that was not taught by Christ, it wasn't taught by the apostles, nor was it approved by them. Paul is not approving this by any means. So they must have thought that there was something more to baptism than there really is. And it's interesting because even within the church today, since the church's existence, there has been confusion about baptism, right? We know right from the beginning, our Presbyterian brothers, they baptize infants, right? This is not something that's new. It's not something that we can just put all on the church of Rome. This was something that in the beginning, th these things happened, okay, from the church, but there's more to it than just a matter of baptizing infants or baptizing believers, which we believe in. Okay? They must have thought that there was something more to baptism than there really was. They were putting more value on it than they should have. And though it was a misunderstanding of it, and though it was wrong, right? Paul is going to use their practice of it to make his point of how rejecting the resurrection is as rejecting a future hope, which means their practice 
of baptizing for the dead in hopes of them gaining something in the future is pointless. In other words, I believe that this meant that some people who believed in Christ died before they got baptized and they felt like they had to do it on their behalf as if there was something important, as if they were going to gain something. That's the only way that I can understand this. Then he's going to speak concerning the example of the life of him and his companions. Number two, he says, the suffering of the apostles and the other disciples. Verse 30 says, why are we in danger every hour? And as I was looking at this, this is not really something that we can relate to in our present context as the church. We can't relate to what most of the church went through since the church's existence. Right? We have these past few hundred years where the church really has not suffered. We suffer, right? Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But we don't suffer like these people suffer. There are some that do in this world that are persecuted. But in general, the church does not suffer like they used to suffer back then. Especially the beginning when a great deal of them were either martyred or they suffered tremendously, unlike how we have, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 to 30. This is concerning the apostle dealing with false apostles and his own suffering, right? Look what he says here in verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers. In dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches." Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And this was not just true of the Apostle Paul here either. We know what all the Apostles went through. Just think of real quick of Peter and James and John. In the beginning, John dying first. Stephen, the first martyr, who was stoned for his faith. And so many others that really, truly suffered for the sake of Christ. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Why on earth would I go through this if this was not true, if I had no future hope to go through this? Verse 31, he says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Now, obviously, he's not being literal here, but he's not exaggerating either. His suffering was quite often, and he had very little time of peace. That was the life that he led. And if you understood Paul's previous life, he had it made. 
So when he says that he dies daily, I believe he is saying that he dies to himself daily. That's the best way that I can understand this. He knew his life was not his own, like all Christians. For him to go through anything like that, he had to die to himself. He had to reel himself back in always and put himself under the mindset that God is my master, right? He is my Lord and he is my Savior. Dying to self is the way of discipleship. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must die to yourself and understand that our life is not our own. Secondly, dying to self is the key to a rich and fulfilling Christian life while we are here on this earth. I think we all want that. We all want to enjoy Him. We want to have a rich, fulfilling Christian life. Well, that's not going to happen if we do not die to ourselves. It's so important. Galatians 2.20. Sharon, Galatians 2.20. You want to read that? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So important. I love this verse. Right? It is no longer I who live. Now again, it's very easy for us to say that. But actions prove whether or not that is really the truth or not. Right? But we need to realize that Luke 9.23, again, Jesus said those famous words in Luke 9.23. Sean, you want to read that? And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I highlighted must there, that that is something that is an important, it's a key word to this. You must deny yourself. There's not an option here. God is first. Right? And what does he say? When our, our relationships with people, it's people that are first. They come before us. Verse 32 says, If from human moment, uh, motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Roman numeral 2, the Christian life is meaningless if there is no future hope. In other words, if there is no future hope, why would I die to myself and live contrary to how most humans generally want to live, right? If there is no future hope. And when we say hope, we're talking about a guarantee. If I don't believe that there's something guaranteed for me in the future, if all this is just nonsense, why would I do the things that I do? To me, it doesn't make any sense. You know, I still remember... And this is not to pick on him. I understood what he was trying to say because as Christians, once we start thinking like Christians, we understand the Christian life is the greatest life because we understand that future hope. I remember Pastor Bill one day, uh, years ago in his sermon, he was saying, but even if all this was not true, isn't the Christian life the greatest life to live? No, not at all. This is not the life that I would live if I was not a Christian. I can tell you that right now. 
I would be eating, drinking, being merry. You don't even want to know how I would be living because if this is all there is, you might as well just load yourself up with as much sin and depravity because this is all there really is from a natural point of view. But obviously, that can't be further from the truth. I know this is the greatest Christian life because it pleases my Father, number one, and because I know what awaits me in the future. Um, So if this life is all we have, why not live it to the fullest and be merry? I believe this is what Paul is trying to say. I don't know if any of you guys ever heard of Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley, he's considered one of the evilest men from the 19th and 20th centuries. And he was heavily involved in the occult. He embraced a philosophy that was just about the polar opposite of Christianity. And a lot of things today, a lot of, a lot of cults, even Christian cults, or God-fearing supposed cults, and a lot of music and all that kind of stuff, really come from the theology that he believed. And two quotes from him are the following. Do what thou wilt, which means do whatever you please. Right? And the key of joy is disobedience. Think about that for a a second. And what that means, again, is disobedience to the Christian values that he was taught. He was raised by a Plymouth Brethren family. They were pretty solid in the scriptures, right? And he obviously rejected that and his pursuit of sin and depravity. And this was what he came up with. So Paul is saying that if there's nothing in the future, Crowley would be correct. Miles will just do what he says. But we know that's not the truth. He didn't have to put food and drink here, but he did for a good example because our natural selves likes to indulge and have in excess. That's the depravity of the flesh. Do we not see this in the world? This is what the world, what we see in the world. This is what the world teaches and preaches. There is the concept of wanting more and more and more in order to be happy. And yet it's only temporary. But if all we have is temporary, then why not? Then why not if this is all you really have? So I would say that 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 is the correct way of thinking and living if, in fact, none of this stuff is true. There's no resurrection. None of it is true. But then there is the phrase, but God. Right? There is that big important phrase, but God. We know there is a God. And we know how He is because He reveals Himself to us in His Word. Right? We know what He wants. We know what He wants from His people, from His children. Why? Because He has revealed it to us in His Word. And we know what He did for us because He has revealed it to us in His Word. And what do we do, church? We believe it, do we not? We believe it. We believe everything written in this book. Even if we can't understand it, lean not on our own understanding, yet we believe this. So one has to wonder where so many false ways of thinking came from. So Roman numeral 3, where did all the misunderstandings that the Corinthians had come from? I mean, listen, they've had a lot of 
misunderstanding is that you really only see in this church. You don't see it in some of the other epistles. Not that they didn't have problems, but we really see a lot in particular in this church. And I think the short answer is one that is twofold. Number one, we have to be reminded that mankind is corrupt in all of their beings. That's what it means to be totally depraved. In James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Alvin, do you want to read that? James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now the reason why, thank you, the reason why I said this verse again, because lots of times when something happens, when there's sinfulness, Christians don't like to own up to it and they like to blame the devil. We don't need the devil to sin. As a matter of fact, the devil doesn't make us sin. He can deceive us. That's the next point. But we sin naturally in and of ourselves because that is who we are by nature in our flesh. Genesis 6.5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty strong absolute detailed verse of what mankind is on their own as represented by Adam the first federal head right any false way of thinking stems from an evil heart and then number two the powerful influence of Satan and his demons Ephesians 6 12 Dino, you want to read that? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's on that paper there. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Amen. And Pastor just got done finishing Ephesians, so we we were reminded of this, right? There is a real struggle out there. There is the evil forces of Satan and his minions, right? That is something that we do have to wrestle. Understand, they can't have our soul. He knows that. But he can deceive. He would love to do things so that the church would be out of order. And we can never forget that Satan is at work in this world and he wants to bring confusion in particular to the church. And that's not how God would have it to be. Right? So then number four, Roman numeral four, the remedy. The remedy. Remove evil from among you. So Paul gives them a remedy by first stating what I believe is the obvious. Do not be deceived. In verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. And this was actually an accurate quote from a well-known Greek poet from that day or maybe the previous day that they, they, they understood when he said this. And Christians have the same sinful flesh as non-Christians, do we not? I can sin as good as anybody, right? And though we should be a godly influence on those we are around, we should, 
We shouldn't be consumed or surrounded by them. They will bring out the worst in us. God is very clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This false way of thinking was because they did not separate from wicked people. And there is the very high call for the church to remove ourselves from the influence of unbelievers. And also to remove ourselves from evildoers within the body of Christ. In other words, there can be sinning believers within the body. True believers, but maybe they're in a state where they are rebellion, rebelling. And they are sinful. And we need to remove ourselves from that. Because I've said this before, we can be unequally yoked with believers. I believe that. You know, someone wants to, we always look at this with marriage. You know, I don't want my kids just marrying someone because they're a believer. I want them marrying a believer that really, really, really wants to grow in their faith. And that's the most important thing in their life. Not just to marry someone who is saved. First Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 6, concerning on accepting immorality in the church. Paul says, your boasting, in verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And we know what leaven does. We know that a little bit of sin spreads like gangrene, like cancer in another spot. Right? Purge out the wickedness that is among you because it will... It will do so. It will destroy, and we don't want that. Concerning their practice of lawsuits against each other, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The unrighteous, apart from getting saved, have no part in heaven. False doctrine stems from the unrighteous hearts of men who engage in these very deeds of the flesh and whose thinking and whose thinking is this worldly rather than future worldly. Second Corinthians chapter 6, and these are very popular verses, verses 14 to 18. John, you want to read those? Well, there's three Johns. I meant John Damon, but whoever. Go ahead, John Damon. Do not be bound. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Delilah? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are all temp- the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and dwell among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. So again, uh, like when it says here, do not be bound together with unbelievers. It doesn't mean that we remove ourselves from the unbelieving world. We can't do that. We are in this world. How would anyone ever even hear the gospel of every believer completely remove themselves? That is, not, that is not what he's saying here. But again, we should not be bound together. In other words, we are consumed with them. They consume the majority of our time. We must be bound together with believers, Right? people of like mind, so that we can encourage one another, build up one another in the most holy faith, so that we can be a good influence when we are not around the uh, believers. So important. Verse 34 says, Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And I think what he's saying here first is that we need to think clearly, to think clearly. To become sober-minded is an interesting word, and I'm going to do my best to try to understand it, but in the Greek, it's in the aorist tense, and it's active, and it's in the imperative mood. And aorist with the imperative does not indicate time. Where oftentimes aorist is past tense, but in the indicative, it does not indicate time. So I believe this means to become as you were, or come to your senses. Come to your senses. The senses that were given to you when you got saved. The new way of thinking that has been granted to you with the eyes being open. Come to your senses. Those who have no knowledge of God are those who are void of the Spirit and they cannot understand spiritual things. So those ones that were teaching something false, did not understand spiritual things, and they were allowing themselves to be influenced by these false teachers. So we're not to remove ourselves from the unbelieving world, but we are not to be consumed with them either. When we remove ourselves, we can begin to think the way that we ought when we are surrounded by the truth and people who believe the truth in a way that brought salvation to us. And then he tells them to stop sinning. He tells them to stop sinning. So secondly, this means to live holy. To live holy. What is shameful to them was the fact that it ought to have been them influencing those without knowledge rather than them being influenced by those without knowledge. It shouldn't be that way. It should be the opposite way. And any time we are not where we should be in this walk, I hate it when I am not where I need to be in Christ Jesus. And if I find myself where I am not where I ought to be in Christ, it is shameful. It is shameful because He saved us for so much more. Again, our salvation is for Him. We need to think of our salvation, not selfishly, but we need to think of our salvation as something that is for the very One who created us, the very One who saved us. So I'll close with this. We must ask ourselves where we can get better. We should always reflect when we're looking at Scripture and we're, we're reading it. And we need to ask ourselves where we can get better 
so that God can be more honored in this life until he calls us home. That, that, that is the Christian walk. That's the Christian life. I want to be better every day he wakes me up. It doesn't happen every day, to my shame. But I want to be better every day he gets us up. So I hope that was clear. Again, it's not an easy chapter. Um, any questions? Any comments? Sean? What is baptism from the dead? What I, so I, again, I believe what, they, what the practice was that they were baptizing, they were, they were being baptized for the, in place of believers that may have believed but weren't baptized, and they were being baptized for them. So let's just say if you died and you weren't baptized, I'm getting baptized for you. That's what I think it means. <laughs> I don't think it meant to try to save them because I don't think they believed that baptism saved. But I think, they, I think that they thought that, was, that there was more to it. That there was some kind of benefit to it. That's the only thing. I mean, it's been one of those things I've read every single commentary from the reformers to everyone present there right now, and no one is in agreement as what this means. It's, it brings a lot of confusion. So for me, that's what makes the most sense to me. They were doing it. They were baptizing for the dead. We know that's not something that was taught anywhere. Some people said it could have been that they were washing bodies. You know, when they died, they, just like we do now, we get them prepared. To make, they look better sometimes dead than they did when they, were, when they were alive. You know, in hopes of something in the future. Then again, maybe that goes a little bit to what I'm saying. But again... That's what I think it means. I, I read something where it said that that's a practice done in Mormonism. Well, yeah, but Mormonism, this, yeah, but this is way before Mormonism. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's, what make, that's what I said in the beginning. What makes this section difficult is here it starts, this section, with a verse that is completely, what does this mean? Yeah. You know, and then you look, at, you look at the original language, you look at the Greek, and... It's not like a, a, a bad translation in English. That is kind of what it's saying. So, that was, that's my take on it. You know, and I won't say that that's infallible because it's not. But that's my take on it. I, but I think, I tell you what, it makes sense to me what he's saying because if I go back to it, where was that? Yeah. go back to my notes yeah so but they're assuming that they're, if you're not baptized if you died before and you weren't baptized that you will not be raised in Christ I don't know okay. maybe again it could be a, sal- a, a, sal- a, sal- a salvation type of thing but then if they thought that saved and they weren't saved if they believed that baptism saved you and Paul goes out of his way to this church that this was a, a believing church. He's getting on them because there were false teachers in this church or just false teachers among them. And they were, being, they were doing a lot of things that were wrong, right? So if they're doing a lot of things that were wrong, Paul had to correct them in their thinking. You can be saved and still have a misunderstanding of something. But I don't know if you believe that, that baptism saves you then that's a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. I can't say someone's a believer if they believe that baptism saves them. So I don't know if it means that. Again, so I think he's saying he's going to give, number one, I said Paul's going to give two examples of the resurrection being endorsed by certain actions. That's what I believe. So I believe that he's going to use their false actions, 
why on earth are you doing this if the dead are not raised at all? So I think he's just, he, he's, he's, not, he's not promoting it. He's just going to use their example. See, even in your own example, which is wrong, it doesn't make any sense. And then he uses the example of himself and all those who were suffering and being persecuted. Why, if, why would they go through all this if there was not a future hope that they believed in? That's what I think. Anyone else? All right. What's well, that time? So let's pray and we'll get into sanctuary. Lord Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for us having eyes to see and ears to hear because we have your spirit, Lord. And sometimes, Lord, Peter affirmed that some things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. Some things that are inspired are hard to understand, even with the Spirit of God inside of us, Lord God. Help us to do the best that we could. Help us to understand we acknowledge we need you every step of the way. And I pray that you would do that now as we get into church. Be with Pastor as he speaks and be with us on the receiving end. Help us to understand what your Word is saying to us so that we can respond exactly how you want us to respond. And that certainly is going to be with wisdom and not with foolishness. So I thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.